What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Louis Shump. Louis is a creative director for Gensler, the renowned design firm with 49 offices worldwide. He is based in their San Francisco location. He actually started his career at Gensler, spending time afterwards at large design firms, NBBJ and HOK, and then joined the design agency, Rap Studio. He returned to Gensler in 2020 in the beginning of the pandemic. He is a graduate of Washington University in St. Louis. We'll be talking about the Westside Pavilion project in Los Angeles, a major repurposing of an urban shopping center as a new office complex for Google. More broadly, we'll talk about the future of shopping malls in a world of Amazon financial distress, waning coronavirus variants, and the metaverse. So thank you so much for being here with us, Louis. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So thanks again. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, your career as a designer started as, at Gensler, and you recently returned in a new role as creative director. I'm so fascinated by this this process. So walk us down this path and what you learned in each uh, step along that process. <laughs> well, it's been a long path, so I'll see if I can make it a little bit uh, scenic and interesting. <laughs> when I left Gensler a little over 20 years ago, it was at the height of the dot-com boom. And it was one of those situations where you know, we literally could not keep up with our clients and their interests in sort of evolving their workplace to meet this new, exciting, internet-driven world. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I decided that that wasn't enough, personally. And for whatever reason, decided that I wanted to elevate interiors to a similar level of academic rigor slash appreciation as architecture, um, and especially, and this is my probably my big error, especially to architects. Mm -hmm. So when I left Gensler and went to NBBJ, uh, we were doing mostly prime, uh, mostly base building projects, healthcare, new office space, lab buildings, where the program of the interior uh, really informed the exterior of the building mm -hmm. and felt that, you know, both there and at HOK, I was making progress in proving, demonstrating, advocating for interiors to be on equal footing. And then as happens with many interior designers, I was asked to work on an office project for mm -hmm. the firm. And it became clear uh, that my strategy partner and I had not really made it clear what we did to the leadership of the office, or at least they weren't willing to go along with the process that we were selling to clients. And I realized that it was, you know, did I realize? No, it wasn't a realization. I had a midlife crisis. It's like, <laughs> it's like shit, you know, are we allowed to say shit? That can be edited. You're totally, <laughs> all, no holes barred, do you. I realized that I needed to refocus, that this idea of, of um, education was all well and good, but I needed mm -hmm. to do something else. So I started looking for opportunities that 
really focused on what the future of the profession would be. You know, we'd gone through another recession in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And my experience was that uh, the interior design and architecture profession stuck their head in the ground and waited for things to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. I didn't believe things would go back to normal. And I wanted to associate myself with an agency, as it turned out, that would be looking to redefine what our careers or what our profession could be in the future. And that's mm -hmm. when I joined Wrapped. The switch from Wrapped to Gensler was, and if you look on our website, if you look on the Gensler website, you know, we use design to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say that we use architecture to make the world a better place. It doesn't say yeah. that we use interior design to make the world a better place, but we use design. And taking what I learned over the last seven or eight years and applying it on the larger stage of Gensler with the reach that we have, has been an amazing opportunity. So super happy to be back. Excellent. And in that concept of design and thinking probably beyond architecture, um, how do you define design and how would you, you, you describe the type of designer that you are? I've given some hints in terms of the, the type of the designer I am, but I say it probably at least twice a day, so 10 times a week, that as a precursor in almost every conversation, that design is the solution to an agreed-upon problem. Got it. Um, and a huge amount of what I spend my time doing is making sure that the problem that we're solving is the correct one mm -hmm. or the appropriate one, if one doesn't believe in correct. And I was thinking about this, uh, this uh, conversation earlier and decided that the kind of designer that I am is firmly rooted in having been raised in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. I was raised Catholic outside of Chicago. And when a client says that they have this much money and this kind mm -hmm. of expectation and this kind of schedule, I take those parameters extraordinarily seriously, sometimes too seriously, mm -hmm. because that's the problem to be solved, right? And this is, even before I had words to describe it, that mandate from a client is something that has always been the motivation for me, not what I thought the best idea would be independently, not what I mm -hmm. thought the most fashionable idea would be, uh, but again, what what would be the solution to the the challenge put in front of me? I think that's really fascinating what you described that as is this need of being able to define and spend time thinking about what a problem particularly is before diving headlong into drawings and solutions and strategies for clients. And I think that probably is a very apt way of describing architects as well, because as a subset of, of design in general, is that so much of what we do is define problems and solve those problems. And so I'm 100% on board with that, that description. I think I mean, the challenge to that, and I think, you know, the challenge that I give my teams every day is not to limit yourself to your expertise or your worldview. So the kind of creative director I am, more than the designer that I was, we'll say, mm -hmm. is making sure that we have diverse and multidisciplinary teams assigned to projects so that the, the definition of the problem is seen from multiple points of view and mm -hmm. the prejudice that it be a brand solution, an architecture solution, or an interior design solution is at least for the time being, set aside. Absolutely. So in your career, you have worked with many technology companies, including Google, and that's the client for the West Side Pavilion mm -hmm. Project we'll be talking about today. When I think of tech companies, I often think of now, new, changing. But looking across your work, how has the concept of what a technology company is actually changed over time? <laughs> that that could be that could be a forty five minute answer in and of itself. Um, <laughs> really part I, two of the conversation. <laughs> when I when I started, technology companies were essentially hardware companies. You know, Hewlett Packard or IBM, and they were housed in these enormous buildings, typically adjacent to some sort of manufacturing facility, with rows and upon rows of gray or slightly blue or slightly beige cubes. That's what technology companies were. They were hardware driven. Then these sort of weird creatures of Microsoft and Apple came around where there was a, you know, this idea of software and 
what does software and hardware and how do they interact? And then, then the internet happened, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden there was a new way of thinking about technology that was information delivery and not hardware delivery. That changed what the workplace looked like tremendously, where those buildings were located, how people thought about the office um, in terms of technology. They didn't have to be in the suburbs adjacent to uh, manufacturing. They could be downtown and be mm -hmm. total, and not be a sales organization. They could be downtown and be an engineering organization. Yeah. And then if you look at you know where we are today, every company is a technology company. So that's a big change from you know Hewlett Packard to fintech and retail and architecture and design. The fact that we could all move, and those of us who are extraordinarily fortunate, could all move home over a weekend and resume our jobs on Monday for two years. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that is, is really an excellent point, is the fact that the definition of a technology company has changed and that that, even in a very small amount of time, two years, that has rapidly changed as well. So I think that probably has informed your work. And I'm thinking one of the other big influences is the city that you live in, so San Francisco. So uh, San Francisco is obviously in the news all the time. People love to hate on San Francisco, but I think it's a wonderful city. Talk to me about, as a designer, you think about the defining of problems and the solving mm -hmm. problems on multiple scales. Talk to me about how you would approach San Francisco and particularly the challenges that it faces in terms of homelessness and the very tight issue of affordability. How do you think of that as a designer in terms of identifying the problem and starting to solve it? Super good question. And the answer I'm going to do, I think I'm going to use two very different scaled answers. One, one sort of pragmatic and current, really current. It's super expensive to live here. Mm -hmm. uh, people who and we have really good food, right? Lots of restaurants, really good food. Yep. But the people who work there could not afford to live in the city. And yep. because of the pandemic, patronage of restaurants went down and the ability to get to and from work decreased and mm -hmm. the expense increased. So, you know, two years later, restaurants are coming back. People are beginning to go out to eat again. And in order to get people to come back to work, restaurant owners have had to change schedules. They've had to close two days a week so that people mm -hmm. could have a predictable work-life balance. They had to start paying more money for those people mm -hmm. to come back to work. They had to pay more money to have the food delivered to their restaurants. And as a result, every time I go out to eat now, I spend twice what I used to spend per person before the pandemic. Um, it doesn't matter the type of food, everything literally costs twice as much money. But we're paying for the actual cost of that service. So if I segue into you know, what it means at a larger scale for the city, we do not like change. People don't like change. One of the hardest parts about my career is that everything I do involves change. So we don't like to build new housing because new housing would change our neighborhoods. People always ask me, Am I in pro a particular project or not? It's like, and my response, in as polite a way as I can figure out how to say it, is think about what I do for a living. I am in, you know, enthusiastic about change, and I, you know, I'm often employed by an architecture firm doing interior design and other things. Of course, I'm for this project. Change is inevitable. We need to grow as a city. If we keep on having children, we need to allow those children someplace to live and not labor under the myth of the ever-expanding frontier where the next generation can just go out and populate whatever that thing is out there. You know, we're on the West Coast. There is nothing out there. We're, we're at the edge. And I think that, that that reluctance to embrace change, the I think you and I discussed it previously, the notion that, you know, the conservationist or the environmentalist is the person who bought their country place last year, and that that kind of myopia and self-serving liberalism makes me crazy. <laughs> so, so I'm very happy to pay twice as much for dinner because it's supporting an ecosystem that's required. Yeah, and I think in particular, this fascination with 
cost as the the thing that we optimize around uh, in time as the thing that we optimize around with our goods purchases rather than say i mean the idea of redundancy and having multiple ways of getting things uh, in order for long-term flexibility with supply chains means that we were left bereft of issues of like things that we actually needed very quickly when uh, certain parts of our transportation system fell apart. And I, for one, I think I would agree with you that I don't particularly need to have uh, avocados in the winter or uh, apples in the spring or bananas at any time of the year. If that means that we're able to have a more logical, sustainable and flexible supply chain so we actually get the things that we need. So I, I totally agree. It's complicated, but I think that we we need to accept that and this, I hadn't really thought about this before. We need to accept the fact that we need um, spend our way to responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that too often in my industry, there's this myth that you can uh, spend your way to sustainability. You know, you bought, you spend more on systems, you do all this amazing stuff, and somehow mm-hmm. that makes it all go away. Yeah. But no, we need to we need to spend more. Yeah. And then speaking of spending money, <laughs> that's a funny transition. Uh, so the Westside Pavilion Project. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's located in the iconic former shopping mall in the Rancho Park neighborhood in L.A. Uh, tell us about this area and the site in particular and what makes them unique. It's it's changed, actually. When the mall was first, well, that site of that mall was the original first drive-in movie theater in Los Angeles. Um, before that, it had been a Native American campground and site. Mm-hmm. Subsequent to that, many people know the West Side Pavilion from Tom Petty's Heart... What was that song? Tom oh, Petty song. Uh, Free Falling. Tree falling, thank you. Which, as it turns out, a little known tidbit of information. It takes as long to walk from one end of the West Side Pavilion to the other as it takes that song to play. So it's about four minutes, five minutes? Four and a okay. half minutes. Four and a half minutes, okay. Four right. minutes, 45 or 50 seconds, depending on your gait. Got it, okay. Oh, it is also in, in Clueless as well, right? Mm-hmm. It was in Clueless. Top of the escalator scene, I think, is Mm -hmm. iconic uh, when it comes to that. But what makes the the neighborhood particularly interesting now is that it's served by the Metro Rail in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. It's at the intersection of Pico and Westwood, so UCLA to the north, the Metro Rail to the south, um, the 405, which for those of you who have been to Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. is a major north-south freeway just uh, west of the site. So it's it's both, with the exception of very few uh, commercial buildings, mostly residential neighborhood, easily accessible to the university, mass transit, and car transportation. And at least, and this is a flash forward, but one of the things that makes it unique is one of the few large-scale office developments that are relatively close to the beach, Mm -hmm. which is where technology companies have tended to migrate. Santa Monica? Venice, Santa Monica, Playa Vista. Okay. And then the property is owned by Hudson Pacific and Masterich and is being leased by Google. What was the prompt that they gave you and how did you go about putting together design strategy and response. I'm thinking this is a bit of defining the problem and clarifying (laughs) it before starting. Well, I'm going to start not necessarily with the prompt, but with the context. So as I said, it's a residential neighborhood, Pico on the north side of the property and residential neighborhood to the south. Like all shopping malls, it was a windowless box that took four and a half minutes to walk from one end to the other on Mm -hmm. the sidewalk next to a windowless box. Um, And when you looked out of your house to the north, you would see a windowless box four stories tall um, Mm -hmm. with shipping and receiving facing your backyard. So one of the challenges was how do we, in converting this building, become a better neighbor? How do we support the community? And how do the design moves that we need to make in converting this windowless box into an office building be used to support both the community outside of 
the site and inside the site. So that was mm-hmm. that was basically the challenge. And how we did that revolved around all the things you'd expect to happen. We needed to put in new systems. You know, what you need for an office space in the 21st century is not what you needed for a shopping mall in the 80s. We needed to reskin the entire building. We needed to think about the role that the outdoors would play in that building. And one of the sort of anomalies of this particular site is that there's an easement that runs from Pico to the parking lot in the back that goes oh. under the building. So you essentially have a street running through this office building uh, that connects Pico, which is at one level, to the parking uh, that's one level lower. The challenge was twofold again, you know, the community and the structure itself. Okay. And what would you say, are, or help us get a, a sense of the scale of the project? So... You mentioned the four and a half minutes and talk us about the square footage and some of the other things so we get an understanding of, of how massive this project is. <laughs> it's really truly impossible to understand when you're mm-hmm. when you're not there, but it's about six hundred thousand square feet of space, five hundred and eighty four thousand to be exact. Mm-hmm. I think uh, while there are more parking spaces that are attached to the property. Uh, the roof parking and the underground parking is sufficient for at least a thousand cars. There are four elevator banks in this building, each with its own set of restrooms plus a few random restrooms elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So there, there are essentially four cores to this building. As I said, one floor next to the easement between Pico and the back of the building, there's one fairly windowless floor that has uh, been a challenge both from a development point of view, but also from a leasing perspective. Mm -hmm. And then three full floors above that, each about 150,000 square feet. Okay. And tell us what stage you are in the development process so far. So Google is, um, the base building conversion is virtually complete. Mm -hmm. Uh, Google is uh, working to make modifications and install their tenant improvements within that structure. Mm-hmm. Some of those were pre-negotiated. Uh, some are in process currently. That project is expected to be done in early 2023. Okay. And then in terms of the, the finishes that folks would expect and like the look and the feel of walking through, help mm-hmm. us get an understanding of what that, that inside would be, particularly if folks saw the that elevator scene in Clueless, how, how this would be transformed <laughs> under Gensel's design. So the world of pink stucco and diagonally placed turquoise tiles has been replaced with, well, one, a complete floor-to-ceiling, you know, window wall that wraps the building. The interior atrium mm-hmm. has been removed for the two-thirds of its length and replaced with an outdoor courtyard. Okay. Some of that is, some of that atrium still interior, but the mall frontages that fronted that have been removed and replaced with full height glass so that as you walk through the building, whether it's the outdoor courtyard or through the inside atrium, you look to the left and the right and you can see all the way through the building uh, from Mm -hmm. the parking on the south or the loading docks on the south to Pico on the north. The finishes are, you know, kind of what you'd expect for early, you know, 20th century office building. It's, you know, vertical louvers to deal with some of the sun solar gain on both mm-hmm. the north and the south side because it's positioned in such a way that in the summer, the sun is actually on the quote-unquote north side of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, overhangs, setback glass. This building had the additional challenge of having changes of level, of uh, mm-hmm. slopes. So every, on the second and third floor, every 50 to 70 feet, there's a change of level that ranges from 18 to 30 inches. Okay. So that means there's a step up in many different places. Correct. So there are ramps along the atrium and steps within the space or ramps within the space, depending on how the uh, interior got laid out. Got it. Was there any thoughts around digging out or dividing spaces along that break? Not digging out because it would change the structural system of the building. Mm-hmm. We did look at extending those levels to places that made more sense, both from an exiting and access point of view. Mm-hmm. And that's been implemented. The divisions between those spaces, we assumed, would be up to the tenant. Got it. So or I'm going to take, or, or not, yeah. yeah. In case if someone was interested in uh, leasing the entire space. Correct. 
which cool. Google ended up doing. Which Google ended up doing. And then are there accommodations for retail at any particular locations or the entire thing is Google's and they'll kind of subdivide as they wish? In the conversations with the city and with the neighborhood, there are provisions for in terms of entitlements and parking, there are provisions for retail and restaurant on the ground floor. There, you know, Google is very actively involved, partially based, not partially based, but leveraging the work they've already done in New York uh, in terms of Pier 39 and mm-hmm. Chelsea Market are actively engaged in creating public friendly, active, urban uh, retail and food service environments. And as far as I know, they intend to do um, a version of that in Los Angeles. That's something that's been really successful in New York uh, with urban space. And I think that's been replicated in uh, actually a number of other places that now my last year of work from home road trip travels all across America, I've seen uh, replicated in other places too. And it seems like a winning strategy. Well, and it goes to the larger, you know, we talked a little bit about the neighborhood being a residential neighborhood. And, you know, I I did Mm -hmm. have personal memories of going with friends to the West Side Pavilion when I was younger. And it was, it really was a destination and an isolated place. And it was the story I usually tell is that we would wait in line for valet parking, even though there was parking on the street. Because... That's what Mm -hmm. you did in L.A. when you were going to the mall. You had to park in the mall with a valet to have that full experience. And what's changed over time is the notion that this is part of a neighborhood. It's not separate from a neighborhood. The spaces on and around the building are outside. They're not just parking. The street is an opportunity while Los Angeles, you know, the walking is relegated to particular neighborhoods. Not allowed, right? <laughs> no, it is allowed. Not allowed right? only, only, no, it's allowed, <laughs> just in very particular places. <laughs> you know, and how do you how do you allow that sensibility to really change? And especially in mm-hmm. you know the times of COVID where and this is based on, you know, Gensler has a research institute and we do research at all different scales, both in the mm-hmm. built environment and the experiential realm. And one of the things we've found consistently before the pandemic, and even more so after the pandemic, is the desire to create multi-use, mixed-use environments. People don't want to live only in places where people are living, and they don't want to work only where people are working. They don't Mm -hmm. want to have to drive to a place that's specifically only for shopping. They'd rather have these things proximate to one another if it's possible. And I think in particular, what that really lends itself to is this very timeless aspect of, of cities, particularly ancient ones that continue to kind of live and have life to them, whether anything like from Karachi to Bombay to Jerusalem to Athens to Istanbul, that a lot of what makes them so vibrant and interesting is their walkability, the interweaving and all those like secret alleys that you go through in order to discover like the best falafel or like the best uh, bilpuri or, <laughs> or the best kebabs or anything else. Uh, and I think the more of that fabric that can be installed in a place like LA, I, I think the better. Agreed. And, and I think that goes to a larger reality that we're beginning to accept is that people want these places to feel alive. They want to see other people they want to feel safe but you know the way i describe it is that they want it to feel alive when you go downtown at night it should feel alive not dead i'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we'll be having matt giamanco of national development company avalon bay communities on the show next month when we record from the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, wherever you like to listen. Redist is a new technology-enabled company that is making it easy for real estate developers to find, win, and then syndicate public financing to drive their businesses and their projects forward, particularly in challenging economic times like these. Learn more at redist.us. 
Provident Bank is a full-service community bank proudly serving New York City, New Jersey, and Eastern Pennsylvania since 1839. As a business banking and commercial lending customer and an advisory board member, I can vouch for their service. And I even have the president's cell phone number as well in case you need. So (laughs) they have a depth and breadth of their products, which includes adjacent service lines like property insurance that help consolidate my processes and simplify my life. So learn more at Provident.Bank. Shopping malls. So I am from New Jersey, <laughs> the land of all malls. All malls and their, their heritage all birthed in this state, New Jersey. American Dream Meadowlands, that's 3 million square feet. Westfield Garden State Plaza, 2.3 million square feet. Freehold Raceway, 1.7 million square feet. These are really big. So in your process of imagining what, if also a very large project like West, um, the West Side Pavilion could be, talk about some malls that stand out for, for you in your research process as you are helping to define this problem. So I only talk in stories. Mm-hmm. So as we were researching the let's say precedent for, you know, malls being converted to other things. All of us, you know, look back upon our mall experiences as, as kids, right? So um, though not as big as the ones you mentioned, I grew up near a mall called Yorktown, which at its uh, opening in 1968 was the largest interior shopping mall in the country. And as you'd expect, mm-hmm. blank you know, exposed aggregate precast panel exterior surrounded by acres and acres and acres of parking. A few miles away from that was a shopping center called Oakbrook Center, which was developed in mm-hmm. 1962 and was an outdoor shopping mall experience, much more akin to Santana Row and other sort of exterior-oriented shopping malls with housing nearby, if not on top. And Mm -hmm. I remember growing up as a kid that while Oakbrook was nicer and the stores were better, it wasn't air-conditioned. The outside Mm -hmm. was not air-conditioned. So people started gravitating to this controlled, windowless environment of, of the Yorktown Mall. So as we were looking at you know, what were the challenges of converting a shopping center, you know, classic 600,000 square foot, though small by your standards mm-hmm. in New Jersey, a, a diminutive 600,000 square <laughs> foot shopping mall <laughs> to, yeah. um, to office. It's like, how do we, how do we balance those two desires? One for a controlled interior experience, but two Mm-hmm. the opportunity to readily access or access the outdoors. And that yeah. became that became the challenge. And I think there, uh, looking back over time, there are examples of retail converted to other uses at many different scales in many different really unique ways. One of the things in particular is the Galleria in Providence, which I think was actually honored being the very first indoor retail uh, complex uh, in the country that would have been in the 18, early 1800s. And uh, that was converted to uh, kept retail on the ground floor, office above that, and then residential above that. And I think being able to layer, layer in and, and do a lot of these different things is really interesting. I think it becomes harder and harder on projects of your scale. Uh, one I, I learned of in particular recently was uh, the Gwinnett Place Mall, uh, which is in Georgia. And mm-hmm. are you a fan of Stranger Things? Oh yes, <laughs> not necessarily. I am an intermittent. I'm an intermittent fan. <laughs> so the season two finale was uh, filmed in the Gwinnett Place Mall, uh, and what is so iconic about it is that in 2017, towards the end of its life, it took the police about two weeks to find a dead body in the mall. It was so empty, and there were so many kind of ins and outs of things that. That was the reality of this incredibly empty uh, retail expense. But being able to inject some amount of life and less dead bodies uh, into shopping malls is, uh, is an important part of this transformation. What I find uh, really fascinating is 
my, I have a, a aunt in Toronto, which also has plenty of shopping malls. And she has said every time that I meet her, her great idea for the past 10 years, and I think she was right on this one, is she said that she goes to malls or around her neighbors, three or four around her. She'll meet other Indian aunties uh, and uncles and go for power walks for about an hour around the mall. Um, they'll sit down, have chai and snacks, and then typically go for another walk and do a little shopping and then go home uh, in time for lunch. She said, turn empty shopping malls into senior housing and then also include uh, daycare because she has grandchildren. So she said, why not let my kids just drop off their, their kids here? I can go check in on them a couple times a day, hang out with my friends from the kitty club. That's what Indianapolis call their, their parties. <laughs> and then everyone's happy. And I think she she's really onto something on that one. No, I agree with you. So what are we going to do about that? So I think actually Simon Property Group uh, has started doing conversions to, to senior housing. I think that that's the, that's the doorstep of what we're on right now, not only in terms of opportunity, but because of demand, because of the aging of America. So uh, I think we're going to see that. I think my, my aunt's finally going to have her dream, 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 dream. <laughs> well, good for her. I mean, because I think that there is, you know, those co-locations are classic, right? Yeah. The senior housing, my son went to a, a school here in San Francisco that was located behind a senior housing complex. Mm-hmm. And they had volunteer day. The kids would go over and, you know, present their artwork to the to the senior citizens and the senior citizens would read them stories and they would have little bake-offs. And it was an amazing, amazing cooperative situation. And I think that when, while there have been many a shopping mall that have been converted to office space, um, some to schools, some to community colleges, Mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, many of them are large enough where they could do all of the above. And it's the, the inertia of our code and zoning Yes. Uh, rules that prevent some of these, you know, radical but logical mm-hmm. ideas from occurring. And I think particularly like, as a city planning commissioner in Hoboken, there is this very like didactic idea that these are the rules and we should follow the rules. And oftentimes the, the variances are the places where you find the most interesting things um, that actually happen. So I was in Georgetown for a couple of weeks uh, in January, so in, in D.C. area. And what I found so fascinating is the fact that Georgetown had grown organically over time around this, you know, canal and uh, Chesapeake in Ohio. And what was so interesting is the smaller scale of building was typically around the canal. And that allowed for these really unique alleyway type cobblestone paths that actually had retail that opened right up onto those paths. So if you were driving, you wouldn't have noticed these. You had to be walking through to be able to enjoy these amazing restaurants, amazing bars, really cool, hip furniture stores and art stores. And I think that level of informality is what makes a space, like I remember it now versus say places that a mall, I don't particularly remember because that reason. But, and how do we, you know, how do we as a culture, as we learn more and more Mm -hmm. about things that used to be intuitive. So we can now Mm -hmm. prove in any category that you can mention what was intuitive or made sense to our grandparents or great-grandparents can now be proven to be true. But our institutions, how do we help them catch up with that? Because it's, it's you know, I, I live in a neighborhood in San Francisco that is, you know, it feels like a village, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's located, there's a street that runs through it. It's in the valley between two hills. There are houses mm-hmm. on the hills. You go down to the bottom of the hill, there's a BART station and a grocery store, a library, a really good pizza place, a bar or two, a hardware mm-hmm. store. And it's the proximity of those things as opposed to, uh, further part, you know, further west in San Francisco, there are neighborhoods that are 100% city beautiful, turn of the last century, mm-hmm. entirely residential on beautiful curving streets with nice big lawns. And there's never that that life that happens by going, no one describes it at those neighborhoods as village. They're just housing. So I want to dial it back a little bit. So we talked about some of the big malls in New Jersey, um, which are relatively recent construction. 
I want to share with our listeners the fascinating history of malls in America. So they were the brainchild of architect Victor Gruen, an immigrant to the United States from Austria, and he designed the first outdoor suburban shopping mall in 1954, and that was in Michigan. Uh, His second mall was built a few years later in Minnesota, and that was the first indoor shopping mall. In the six decades after, suburban mega malls were built at the clip of about 25 per year. And half of those 1,500 or so uh, that were built have already closed uh, now, and another quarter are expected closing in the next five years. And from your perspective, your experience, your vast purview of, of malls as a mall expert now is... <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> help us understand how shopping malls became what they are today. So at the point where it was the height of coolness, like you mentioned, Yorktown and place people go to this decrepit state that we are now in, which is the fate of many, many empty malls across the country. What happened? Oh, so the pendulum swings, right? So I'm significantly older than you are. And when I was growing up, it was at the end of that post-World War II exodus from urban decay, racism, proximity to industrial functions, all those things that after the Second World War, people felt that they could escape by moving to the suburbs. So, you know, I was a white kid growing up in suburban Chicago, and many of my friends and I longed for nothing other than to go back to the city. So we we had our prom for high school downtown at the Palmer House Hotel in Chicago. Um, it's a really beautiful historic hotel. It's Yeah, fantastic. I would ask my dad every Christmas, and this is probably way too much information, but I would ask for a trip downtown Chicago to visit new apartment buildings and other buildings so I could collect their floor plans. And so, you know, off I went to school and after school, all of my friends and I did not repatriate to the suburbs. We all yeah. moved to cities. And I think that even as people started having children and moving out of the city proper, it was to places like Montclair, New Jersey, or Mm -hmm. Palo Alto, California, or Silver Lake, Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. where the, as we've been discussing earlier, there was a, a lively intermixing of industrial, commercial, retail, and residential functions. Typically, at least ostensibly with some range of socioeconomic and racial diversity. As those places became more popular, that diversity diminished, which is, you know, one of the problems that we're beginning to focus on, you know, as a country and a society today. But I think that's what happened to shopping malls, right? It's like where shopping malls to Gruen's vision were a, social destination in the wasteland of single family housing in, you know, mm-hmm. postage stamp yards. They were not attractive to my generation, uh, not as a social place, not as a cool place, not literally the only reason, you know, for many decades that I went to a shopping mall was like the the IMAX or some amazing movie that was only showing there. Yep. And it was the the evolution of the shopping mall from sort of consumption of goods to the consumption of entertainment that extended yeah. their life for as long as they did. Yeah, until the entertainment became a focus on the home environment. So Gruen had, I think in my heart, Gruen had really meant well. And what's so fascinating is a fast company. <laughs> I'm just thinking there's so many people. <laughs> the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, fast company did a really uh, good analysis of what the intentions and the realization was. And what, what they described was that uh, Gruen wanted to import the pedestrian experience of modernist European cities like Vienna and Paris into America. But the automobile was king. By 
creating places for community in the deserts of suburbia, as you mentioned, he had hoped to lure people away from their cars and into contact with one another. And he hoped that the, the malls would be places for shopping, yes, but also for food, for relaxation, for green space. And in his most his original first conceptions, the mall would also be a place to connect to residential, other commercial uses like medical care and, and community uses like libraries and public spaces. So what's so fascinating is because of the toxic soup of entitlements and very risk-averse capital that we ended up with the, the key piece that was necessary in order to translate this was detaching the automobile from this experience. But when the automobile was the, the key way that people got there, and that was the way that um, malls were organized, we ended up with these relatively mono-use uh, spaces that now are being transformed to accommodate some of these original multi-use ideas that, that Gruen had. I think that that's all true. I was thinking of the example of the Stanford Shopping Center uh, here in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And the open-mindedness with which Palo Alto approaches the zoning of that mall is in direct proportion to the sales tax revenue that flows back into that city. Yes. And that sea of parking has you know, gradually diminished over the years because the real estate for retail is too valuable. So, yes. re, you know, retail is now being built on top of the parking. But it's it's a formula that I think, because it's proximity to Stanford and it's proximity mm-hmm. to downtown Palo Alto and the light, well, it's not a light rail, it's the commuter rail train. There's an incentive for open-mindedness. You know, the mm-hmm. Palo Alto, the Stanford Medical Center is directly south of Stanford Mall. Housing for doctors and patients is directly across the street and mm-hmm. half a block from the shopping center that has a Whole Foods. Yeah, that's the future. I think that's absolutely it. Okay. But it's economic. It's right? economic as well. Yes, absolutely. So then given all of these experiences and examples and intentions and realizations that we talked about, how would you give someone or what is the toolkit that you would give somebody to say, I have a really crappy mall, whether it's the one with a dead body that took two weeks to find. So what do I do? What's the toolkit? What's the process? Well, we talked about it a little bit, right? In the sense that you're taking an object that was inwardly focused and making it outwardly friendly, if not outwardly focused. So glass is the first element of your toolkit. The realization that decentralized cores is to your benefit is the second thing, you know, to take away from at least my experience so far. Mm-hmm. The third, I think the third is more aspirational, but because the systems have to be new, what challenges to the hermetically sealed office building can we make as we convert a mall into an office space? Can the windows open? Can we insert light wells that allow for convection? Sure. Can, you know, what are all the things that we can do because we have the advantage of a huge percentage, well over 50% of our carbon footprint is being reduced by reusing one of those structures? So what can we afford to experiment with or what can we afford to invest in that we couldn't otherwise? Interesting. And now taking the other end rather than the idea of converting malls, what do you see as the the future of retail more generally? So, for example, Omnichannel or talking about bricks and mortar for mm-hmm. e-commerce. Talk about where your head's at beyond malls about retail. So I have a cheat sheet here um, <laughs> from the aforementioned Gensler Research Institute. We just published our design forecast for 2022, and there's a retail component to that. And most of what the future of retail looks like, at least from our research perspective, is one of choice and one of agility mm-hmm. and one of meeting people literally where they are. Mm-hmm. So the idea of pop-ups and mobile but also culturally where they are, whether mm-hmm. it's an in-person shopping experience or a you know 
augmented reality shopping experience that's adjacent or embedded or a virtual reality shopping experience that may need a space to host it. Those are all looking very seriously at the range of demographics that are our consumers and meeting them where they are and designing for the world in which they live, whether that world is physical, virtual, or augmented. So that's that's sort of at the store level. I think, you know, more, and again, we've talked about this previously, but the idea that retail is part of a mixed-use environment mm-hmm. and that it's an experience and not just a place. I think that feels like the tying thread, whether you're talking about Westside Pavilion, mall renovations to senior housing and other uses or, or retail more generally. I think that's an excellent place for us to, to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Lewis. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed your conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. And listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team and Michael Graves, and many of our spectacular guests like Lewis on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Lewis and I have made donations to the Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBTQ advocacy group and political lobbying organization in the United States. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.